This is our biggest weekend uh, aside from Easter through the course of the year. And I'm just so glad, so thrilled that the people of Cross Church understand the importance of what we do. And um, this morning I want to talk about the importance of continuing the work that we do. Uh, we are, I don't know if you remember this, but we actually used this graphic last year. We called the series at this time The Missional Life, and we're continuing, it to, call, continuing to call it The Missional Life. The reason we call it that is because we're talking about a lifestyle, the Christian lifestyle of being on mission. Now, if you are a believer, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then, then you are on mission for Christ. Amen? Everybody gets that? Yeah, so it's not just the pastor who's got to be good. All of us, we all are on mission. And, you know, there's some people in this church that get it and some people that still don't get it. And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not mad. I'm not angry much. <laughs> no, I'm not angry. But my job as your pastor is to try, try to help you understand what it means to obey Christ, to follow him and do his will. Amen? That's, that's what my job is. My job is to teach you how to follow Christ and how to obey him and do his will. Now, look at if, if you are one of those people that's counting the hours, well, I've given my three hours this week, and so that's all, that's all I'm doing. Like, you don't get it. Those of us who are sold out for Jesus, we love to serve. We love to show up and do whatever it is that we need to do to make a difference in this world. Last, uh, last night, there's a, a lady here who, who came to the church in 2013. And she said, Pastor Allen, um, I remember the message that you preached when I was here. And I said, what was, what was it? She said, it was all about serving. She said, it changed my life. It revolutionized my life. And I know now that the thing that's going to bring me happiness and joy in my life is serving. So I want to tell you, folks, if you haven't yet experienced the joy of serving, the joy of showing up and doing what God calls all of us to do, then you really don't get it. So I want us this morning to continue on what we were talking about last week, talking about the strategy of the early church. But before I do so, let me just set it up by sharing a few things with you. Um, Gloria, I don't know if you recognize this building. Do you recognize it, honey? It's Agus Lucas. Agus Lucas was the hospital that uh, St. Jesse was born in. <laughs> That's our firstborn. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's, when we were missionaries in, uh, in, in Thessaloniki, we asked the locals, what's the best hospital to go to? Because it's our firstborn, and we don't want to take any chances. We want to make sure it's great. And they said, oh, that would be the Presbyterian Hospital. And so we went there, and I met, uh, I met the director. His name is Dr. Katsarkis. Dr. Katsarkis was not only the administrator of the hospital, but he was also the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in, down, in the downtown of Thessaloniki. Now, this is odd. This is, this is an odd thing. It's not odd to you, but it's very odd if you're in Greece because 97% of the country or more is actually Greek Orthodox. How is it that the Greeks are telling us to go to a Protestant hospital? How are they telling us that that's the best hospital? Well, here's the thing, folks. I did some research, and I discovered that the Presbyterians had, in fact, 
established hospitals all over the world. In fact, I think uh, Aldwin Ragunas' brother is good friends with Dr. Katsarkis and, and it was telling me of other places where they've got hospitals. This is and has always been the mission of the church, to go and bring care and hope and healing to broken and hurting people. But it's not just hospitals that the church has established around the world. The church has always led the way in caring for people and sharing with people and helping people improve their condition in life. If you look at, uh, if you look at the major universities in the world, just maybe a few of you just shout out some of the major universities that you know. Did I hear Harvard? Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Princeton. These are all, these were all Christian schools. Did you know that? They were all started by ministers. It was all part of advancing the kingdom of God and making the world a better place. Now, I have a friend that works at Oxford University. And so a few years ago, when Gloria and I were there, uh, he said, hey, why don't I give you guys a tour? So we spent some time touring. I think we did. We or we no no I toured. You didn't get to do that, honey. You want to do that? Whoops. <laughs> oh, you did. Okay, hallelujah. <laughs> I'm not not losing my mind. I was pretty sure she came with me. Um, thank you, dear. <laughs> anyway, we went there, and so he started showing me around Oxford University. Now, most people, when you think of Oxford University, you think of University of Manitoba, one building with you know a few faculties. This is actually a university with, um, for, for, for simplicity's sake, let's just say 44 colleges. For, 44, and all of them were established, almost all of them were established as places to train ministers to preach the gospel. But it wasn't just a place to train ministers. And this is, by the way, when I say training ministers, we're talking about Anglican ministers, Anglican priests. Um, they... they they were devoted to making the world a better place, making England a better place. And so when you, when you go through Oxford University, which if you ever get a chance to do that, it's absolutely fascinating, you see the influence of Christians and the church throughout the centuries. One of the places that we visited was a place where, remember I talked about John Wesley a few weeks ago, maybe even last week? John Wesley, the man that established Methodism, that uh, actually transformed all of England, the whole, the whole of the United Kingdom was transformed because of the preaching of this man and because he was willing to teach people how to read. We sh he showed, they showed us the rooms where he used to meet with his people, and, and, and they just left it like that. They left it the way it was when he was doing that. They've, they've got plexiglass up so you can't touch anything, but you could see in there. I was very moved by that. Because I was looking at the heritage of my faith, of what men and women uh, were doing before I ever got here. And so what, what I'm doing and what we're doing here at Cross Church is we are now uh, carrying on the legacy. We're going to pass on this legacy to the next generation. And so when I saw David standing up here, David Hartree standing up here um, on Friday and Saturday night just sharing just a few moments about what he was doing in Africa. I was so thrilled, so delighted that we're passing it on to the next generation. This is what the church has always done. 
And I don't know if anybody went to the Wikipedia page that I told you about last week to research the timeline of Christian missions, but you take a look at that. It's absolutely fascinating what the church has done around the world for centuries. Do you remember last week? I think it was last week I told you about John Wesley and how he didn't just preach the gospel. He taught everybody how to read. Now, here's the thing, folks. As soon as people learn how to read, immediately they're upwardly mobile. In other words, they are going to a better place, a better station in life. As soon as you can read, as soon as you can write, your life automatically becomes better. These Christian clergymen, these Christian pastors, they understood that. And so they were devoted to teaching people how to read and write. And, and historians say, and I've told you this already, but historians say that John Wesley and the Methodists were responsible for establishing a middle class of getting people out of the gutter, out of poverty, and getting them into a place where they were doing better financially. Folks, that's exactly what we're doing in Burundi. We are doing exactly what Jesus Christ has called all of us to do. Now, some of you know that one of my favorite passages of Scripture is Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, and it's called the Great Commission. I'm so glad you know that. I'd be so devastated if you had no idea what I was talking about. It's the Great Commission, isn't it? And Jesus said, do what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. We understand that the thing that makes this world a better place is that people learn what it means to submit their lives to Christ. And once they've submitted their lives to Christ and they start doing what Jesus has called them to do, it's a game changer. There's one fellow that I was talking to, and, um, and look, I'm not, I'm not judging or condemning anybody, but I'm going to tell you the power of the gospel to transform people's lives. Both he and his wife were smoking like a pack of cigarettes every day. So I sat down with them and I said, let's do the arithmetic on this. When we did the arithmetic, we discovered that they were spending the equivalent of a mortgage payment every month. And so I said, look at, you know, first of all, smoking's not good for you. So by the way, I'm not judging or condemning anybody here. So don't anybody get mad at me. This, this body, Paul says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I said, look, at, it's not even good for you physically. But here's the thing, once you give that up, it actually will free up your resources so that you can actually buy a house. And so guess what? That's exactly what he and his wife did. And now they're living in their own home. That's the power of the gospel. The power of following and obeying Jesus Christ. Everybody get that? Okay, so Jesus, uh, Jesus gives us clear commands, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And if we look at this story of the apostle Paul, and in case you don't know who he is, he was, uh, we call him a Johnny come lately or Paul come lately. He wasn't one of the original 12, but he was in fact established as an apostle after Jesus ascended into heaven. And what does the apostle Paul do? The apostle Paul recognizes that God wants him to go and preach the gospel, not just to Jewish people, but to Gentiles. Now, who are Gentiles? If you're a Gentile, put up your hand. Okay, that would be like all of us. We're all Gentiles. Hey, aren't you glad that God loves the Gentiles? But the Jewish people didn't know that. Those Jewish disciples, they thought, oh no, God only loves Jewish people and everybody else is going to hell, no matter what. But God loves us. He loves us so much that he raised up a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. And Paul and Barnabas together, they went out 
and they preached the gospel. Now, there was a little bit of friction in the early church because some of those Jewish believers, they said, hey, we don't, we don't want you to be preaching to the Gentiles. And if you do, make sure they get circumcised. Can you imagine if we still have to do that? Baptized and circumcised. I don't think we get many converts. At least not many men anyway. But anyway, here, here's, here's the apostle Paul. He's saying, no, that's, that's not it. So a fight breaks out between the leaders. And finally, they recognize God loves Gentiles. And so the apostle Paul at, this, at the uh, council of Jerusalem meets with the leaders. And here's what they come up with. They come up with this. Not that, this. James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me. That's Paul. And accepted that Barnabas and, and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Okay, so we're, we're good. We're just good. But it doesn't stop there. And this is really interesting. I want you to see this. The next verse, verse 10, it says their only suggestion, in addition to preaching to the Jews and the Gentiles, their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. Now, this emerges as really the first early church strategy. We're preaching to Jews, we're preaching to Gentiles, and we're taking care of the poor. That is Christianity in a nutshell. That's what the church should be doing. And now, if you're in agreement with that, say amen to that. That's, that's our job. We take care of the poor, we preach to the Jews, we preach to the Gentiles. That means everybody is going to hear the gospel. So preaching the gospel and caring for people is what Christians have always done or were supposed to do. Hey, do you, have you ever heard um, that, that little proverb? Uh, some people say that it was a missionary who said it. Some say it's a Kenyan proverb. I'm not sure. But it goes like this. A hungry belly has no ears. Have you ever heard that? Say it with me. A hungry belly has no ears. Say it one more time. A hungry belly has no ears. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But you get it, I hope, because everybody here is really smart across church. We all know that. It's one of the smartest churches in the world. A hungry belly has no ears. Folks, we understand that in order for people to hear the gospel, in, for people to understand that this indeed is good news, they have to see the practical side of this. How, does this. how is it good news? And the way that it's good news is that we teach people how to care for themselves. We teach people how to have a better life. Now, we can't force people to listen to us. In fact, this is what I hear. I've heard this over the years so many times. You know, the church is all about rules and regulations. Don't do this and don't do that. Hey, folks, if you think that's what it's all about, you don't get it at all. The church is all about teaching you how to have a rich, satisfying, and abundant life so that your needs are met here and now. Not just so that you make it into heaven, but so that you have an abundant and satisfying life right here, right now, so that you can be in a position to partner with God to make a difference in this world. And if you say amen to that, I would just be so delighted. That's what this is all about. So we're teaching people, we're helping people have a better life, and we're telling them what it means to have eternal life. This is the New Testament strategy uh, it may be the very first church strategy. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When the church stopped caring for people, 
it sparked a revolution. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I guess maybe the best way to explain it or to call it would be a Protestant, a protesting revolution. Back in the about the 14th century, uh, there was a man that was sent out. His name was Johann Tetzel. And he was sent out to sell what we call indulgences. Now, I don't think the Roman Catholic Church still sells indulgences, but uh, the Pope needed money. And here's what he needed money for. He needed to build St. Peter's Basilica. For the Pope at that time, the most important thing was to have a glorious, a splendid temple to the, to the glory of God, but maybe also to the glory of a pope, to the glory of the Roman Catholic Church. And this was built by selling indulgences. Now, what is an indulgence? Well, let me, let me tell you. Janet's selling them in the foyer after the service, if you want to get one. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. A, an indulgence was this. If you give X number of dollars, then the pope the Pope is going to give you a free pass out of purgatory. Could you imagine being able to buy your way out of hell? You live like hell now, and if you make a lot of money, or if you're a real good criminal, and I mean by good criminal, I mean you know how to make good money as a criminal, you can live like hell now, and then when you, get, when you die, you can get out of hell. It's, you could see how absurd this is. Absolutely absurd. In fact, there was uh, a, a little jingle that came out. Let me just share it with you. It's kind of funny. It's simple. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the coffer would be like the offering plate. So as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul out of purgatory springs. You like that? As soon as the coin, I gotta say it again. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul out of purgatory springs. Hey, folks, let's just, let's just be honest. They were ripping off the poor, ripping off the poor big time. Because I can, how many know today that no pope has got the authority to say who goes to heaven, who goes to hell? We understand that, right? So this, this, there's a movement, a Protestant, a protesting movement. They protested against Rome and said, this is evil, this is wicked, you're ripping off the poor. This is not of God. And you know who, you know who led the revolt? Was a Catholic monk by the name of, it was an Augustinian monk. His name was Martin Luther. He was so mad. He, that, that was like the last straw for him. That just, that was like he had enough. And so he sat down and he thought, hey, it's not just the purgatories that are ticking me off. And so he came up with 95 things that was really ticking him off about the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the things was that you could buy your way into heaven. And another thing was that, that you could, if you were good enough, that that would get you to heaven too by good works. Here in our church, we teach you that you don't get into heaven by your good works. Maybe I freaked out a few people here today. I'm good for nothing. Being good does not get you into heaven. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ gets you into heaven. Do you know that Martin Luther was so obsessed by his sin and, his, and, his, and the realization that he could never be good enough that he would, take, he would take a whip and whip himself and beat himself. And he was in dark depression and, and, and he just could, he, 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 
nothing he could do that would satisfy his heart that he was good enough to go to heaven. Until one day he started reading in Romans and he recognized that his, his salvation was by faith alone. In fact, Paul says that so that nobody can boast. And so here's the apostle, here, here's, here, uh, the, the apostle Martin Luther. <laughs> here's Martin Luther who suddenly recognizes that we got major problems with Rome. And so he, he nails these, these 95 theses, as we call them. The 95 reasons why the Roman Catholic Church has got to change. And by the way, I'm going to tell you this. Martin Luther, he, he had no, no intentions of leaving the church. He didn't want to leave the Roman Catholic Church. He loved the Roman Catholic Church. What he wanted to do is he wanted to see much-needed reform. But the Pope said, hmm, that crazy little monk in Germany or this? And guess what he chose? This. In fact, we were there. We went there. We saw it. And folks, I'm going to tell you, that does not do justice to that building. It is one of the most spectacular buildings I have ever been in in my life. And I'm walking through there, and I'm thinking, all of this by ripping off poor people. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that the church would, would build a place like this to honor a God who says, I don't live in temples built by the hands of men. It doesn't make sense. And so we have a Protestant revolution because we are not fulfilling that original strategy, preach the gospel and care for the poor. They stopped preaching the gospel or they perverted the gospel. They twisted the gospel. They said, here's the good news. If you give us your money, you can get into heaven. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. We're, we've seen a resurgence of that kind of thinking. We see it especially among TV preachers. I'm not saying all of them, but some of them. When I read that certain TV preachers are living in $10 million mansions and driving half-million-dollar cars, I think to myself, what would Jesus do? Jesus, who said foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Are you kidding me? Hey, folks, would someone give me a hammer? I'm ready to nail my own 95 theses on the wall, if you, if you get my meaning. It's time for us to understand what our calling is. Where our job is to preach the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, and to take care of the poor. Does everybody get that? That's who we are. That's what we're all about. So that's, we, we just talked about the church's strategy, and I'm going to talk about the individual Christian's uh, calling. Everybody today who is in this place who calls himself or herself a Christian, God has a special calling for you. I asked three people yesterday, um, is it possible to be a Christian and not give? Actually, the first person I asked was Janet. And without even thinking about it, she just said no. No. I, I, I wanted her to think about this, but she knew instantly, no. You can't call yourself a Christian and not be willing to give. And then I asked two other people the same question. And their answer was the same. No, it's not. But folks, I'm not the only one who's asked that question. Because I know some of you are sitting here thinking, man, Pastor John, you're sure being harsh. 
What do you mean? What if I can't afford to give? Hey, I'm gonna tell you right now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you can't afford to give, then somehow the gospel didn't work in your life. And I'm, I, in my experience, the gospel always works. So it's not the gospel's fault. I'm not blaming anybody or saying it's anybody's fault, but it's not the gospel's fault. Think about that for a minute. I'm not the only one that asks this question. Here's what John says, 1 John 3, 17. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion? Yeah, that's exactly my question yesterday. How can you say that you have the love of God in your life and you don't care about the poor, about your brother and sister in need? Folks, I gotta tell you, I am so thrilled, so delighted that God gave us the assignment that he gave us. And the, the assignment that God gave us was to reach out and care for Burundi. How many are thrilled that we get to take care of the poorest country in the world? Yeah. And if you don't believe that Burundi's the poorest country, then do what I did last night at the banquet. Ask Siri. Not now. <laughs> you ask Siri, and Siri will tell you, Burundi's the poorest country in the world. Now, here's John saying, how can God's love be in that person? Do you know, if you look at the early church, and I always hear people say, hey, I, like I want to be part of a church that's like the early church. I want to tell you, folks, this has been my, sort of my, the holy grail, if you want to use that terminology, for, for me as a pastor. I want to have a church that is like the early church. And here's what we read in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 35, about the early church. Listen to this. This is really cool. All the believers were united in heart and mind. Sound good? I like that. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. Oh. I like the first part of that verse, Pastor. I'm not, I don't know about the second part of that verse. It says they, they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared, they shared, they shared everything they had. And the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The apostles are the 12 disciples. They testified powerfully to the resurrection of Lord Jesus. They were witnesses. And they testified of God's great blessing that was upon them all. And listen to this. This is really crazy. Verse 34. There were no needy people among them. Hey, if there's anybody needy in this church, I need you to come and talk to me immediately because I want to be like the early church. I don't want to have any needy people around me. I don't want needy people around me. And the best way to deal with that is not to push them away, but provide for their needs, amen? There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Wow. You've got to ask yourself the question, did these people just wake up one day and think to themselves, hey, now that we're Christians, let's sell everything we have and give to the poor. Hey, listen, it's at times like this we have to look back at our Hebrew roots. We've got to look at what the Jewish mind would understand about righteousness. Now, in, in Judaism, there is a word for charity, and it's to, what is it? Sadaka, that's right. Thank you. Is that Creston? Way to go, buddy. Sadaka. Now, I'm going to tell you, in fact, the word sadaka really 
it's we say charity, but that's like the closest word that we can come up, come up with to explain what that is. The, the Hebrew term literally means righteousness. Did you get that? Tzedakah means righteousness, but it's commonly used to signify charity, but it's not. It's, that's not really what it is. And the reason it's not, strictly speaking, it's not charity is it because it's commanded in the Torah and is therefore not voluntary. Did you get that? So giving and to the poor and meeting the needs of the poor was not something that was voluntary. In other words, it's not like me at this church begging and pleading and, and doing everything. I mean, I practically slipped my wrist to get people to, to, some people to get on board to help us take care of the poor, the, the poor and the needy. It's not voluntary. If you are a Jew, if you are, belong to the people of God, it's not voluntary. It is commanded. You have to take care of the poor and the needy because this is righteousness. Are you getting this this morning? The Jews understood that giving their money, giving their time, their treasure, their resources to help the needy was an act of righteousness and justice. It was not an act of benevolence or generosity or of charitableness. Now, you may not be able to, you might think maybe I'm parsing terms and words and trying to make a a false distinction, but I'm going to tell you it's a very solid distinction. If I give charitably, then that's something I decide to do. But when I am giving out of righteousness and justice, that's something that God has commanded me to do. So when I'm giving to the poor and the needy, folks, it changes everything. Because now it's not about Alan Duncalf. It's all about my obedience to God. Are you getting this this morning? When I'm giving to the poor and the needy, this is an act of holiness, of righteousness, of justice. This, my friends, is what pleases and honors God. And so this is really what was happening with the early church. They were taking righteousness to new heights, new levels. The Pharisees loved to brag about how they were so good and about the good things they did for others, but they didn't get it. Their heart was not in it. But suddenly we see Jesus' idea of righteousness. And those who've got the money are selling what they have to make sure that there are no needy people in Jerusalem. In fact, that's exactly what the apostles are driving at when they say to Paul, hey, preach to the Gentiles, but don't forget about the poor. Tell the person beside you, don't forget about the poor. Do you know that the Torah, listen to this, this will blow you away. If you, if you have a problem with giving 10% to the work of God, the Jews gave 10% to the work of God, and it also, the Torah also required that the Jews give 10% of their income for righteous deeds, righteous causes, regardless if the receiving party is rich or poor. Isn't that something? 10% to the, to, to, to the work of God so that we can keep the place going and another 10% to help the poor and the needy. Can you imagine if we function like that today? Everybody's quiet, put your head down. Pastor, I'm just gonna skip this part. <laughs> Wait till it's over. Could you imagine if we live like this? There would literally be no need in this community. If everybody in our church got on board and said, we want to live like this, we as as the church in the world today would eliminate poverty. 
You can do the arithmetic on, on that yourself. So let me just say this. There are two ways to give. And here's how most people give. They give because, first of all, it makes them feel good. Throw a few bucks on the, in the plate for the poor. You know, Santa Claus, the Salvation Army Santa Claus ringing the bell. And we put a few bucks in there. And at Christmas, I think, oh, I feel so good now. I can go blow a bunch of money on myself because <laughs> I gave $2 to the Salvation Army. Some people give like that because it feels good. In fact, that's, what, that's, that's the world. That's the world we live in today. They, they give. There's charities, all kinds of charities, because it makes you feel good. It doesn't just make you feel good. You get some recognition. It, has anybody ever been to any of the hospitals in the city? Right in the foyer, right, right in the foyer of every hospital, there is the lists and lists and lists of people who give. How many have seen that? Anybody? Nobody? Has anybody been to the hospital? Is it just me? It's me and Shane and Glory. We're the only ones. There's lists and lists of people who've given. And boy, you're categorized. If you've given, then you are a partner. But if you've given lots, you are a founder. You, you get the big name and you get, you get to be in the list of all the mucky mucks with the big bucks. And a lot of people give like that. Corporations give because they want to be good corporate citizens and they want to get the recognition and look at what we've done, look at what we've given. Go to Denny's, you would like to put a dollar in the account to get the pink shirt. You go to Costco, you'd like to put a dollar towards that fund. If you go to the bookstore, you'd like to put a dollar in for the book fund and on, so on and so on and so on. It makes you feel kind of good. When I see this corporation say, hey, we, you know, we, we had fundraising. You know how much we, we raised? We raised $2,000. Isn't that amazing? Like, nah, not really. Come to Cross Church, and we'll show you what it really means to raise money. Hallelujah, amen? There's no pride there, folks. It's joy, joy in our hearts. Some people give because it makes them feel power. I've got power over you. I'm better than you. I'm bigger than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm richer than you. And so here's money from my business. Here's money from my pocket. I gotta tell you, there's some charity folks that just doesn't feel good. And the reason it doesn't feel good is because there's no real sense of love involved in that because I'm given to satisfy myself. The kind of giving that Christians do is a kind of giving that is in line with God's will for justice and righteousness in this world, amen? To care for the needs of the poor and needy. So folks, when I sponsor my kids, and by the way, Gloria and I got twins, we're proud parents of twins. We're, we're doing that as unto the Lord. We're doing that because God has called us to advance his cause of righteousness and justice in the world, right? Isn't that right? You know, after we got our total last night, I had a lot of people say to me, Pastor, see, you're worried for nothing. If you're one of those people... Uh, thanks for pointing out the obvious. <laughs> See, Pastor, you were Look, I'm going to tell you something. I never really do worry about the total because it always just blows my mind every year. Anybody with me on that? Just doesn't it blow your mind every year? Here's what, here's what, what troubles me. Here's what causes me distress. In case you don't know this, I am the pastor of this church. Okay, just in case you don't know. 
my job as pastor is to lead this church in a growing relationship with Christ. My job is to teach you how to be solid Christ followers. Are you getting that? That's my job. I'm not really worried about the total because I know that God will provide. Here's the thing that troubles me. My job is to teach you how to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is, is that not everybody wants to do that. This is the thing that causes me to lay awake at night because it's out of my power. It's out of my control. Really what it comes down to is the person and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. My job is to teach you and to pray for you and pray that God will enable you and help you to respond to him in obedience. Because if you're not caring for the poor and caring for the needy folks, you are not doing what Jesus has called you to do. John has said it, really. How can God's love be in a person who shows no compassion to those in need? He said, and I, I don't want to hear people say to me, Pastor Allen, I can't afford it. Because the fact of the matter is, you can. I thought people would say, Amen, Pastor. You can. I had, uh, I had somebody come up to me yesterday. Stand up for a sec. Can you stand up for a sec? And just wave at everybody. Do you know who this is? Who is that? France, you can sit down now. France said to be Pastor Ellen, I want you to know I'm, I'm, I'm on social assistance, but I put together all the money necessary to come to this banquet. I wanted to burst out crying because I thought, okay, my job as pastor, it's working. Friend understands that to be a follower of Jesus Christ means that you dig in deep and you provide for and meet the needs of others. Folks, this is what Christianity is about. Look, this is why we have taught our kids, as soon as they got a job, start tithing. And don't just tithe, but start taking care of the poor. And I'm, I'm thrilled to tell you that Jesse, Nicholas, and Sarah, all of them now, all are sponsoring a kid in, in Burundi. Now, I'm not bragging about that, but there's a reason why I'm telling you this. And, and, uh, and it's because of this. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. How am I going to teach my kids to follow Jesus? By putting into practice what Jesus calls us to do. I tell you, on, on Friday night, I, I said to Pam, Pam, you, you, you're, you get it. You get how to be a good parent. The best thing that you can do for your kids, and it's not just Pam, it's Pam and Shane, but I said this to Pam on Friday. The best thing you can do is get your kids in a place where they start caring for orphans and widows because that's authentic Christianity. Anybody can talk the talk. I mean, know that. But it's a quite a different thing to walk the walk. So I am teaching my kids that whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to poverty will be cursed. 
Some of you are under a curse right now because you just refused to take the step of faith. I'm gonna tell you, the, the first and most obvious step of faith that anybody can take is to give. Do you, are you getting this this morning? Now look, as a father, I'm not a rich guy. I think most people know that today. I'm not, I'm not a wealthy man. I will never be able to pass on a massive inheritance to my kids. So as a father, I've got to think to myself, what can I do so that my kids will never lack anything? And then God shows me this. If I teach my kids to give to the poor, to care for the needy, the orphan and the widow, then they will never lack anything. And if my kids aren't lacking anything, then I can sleep well at night. I don't have to lay awake worrying about them and thinking, oh my, I'm going to have to dig into my savings to help them get out of another financial rut. No, I teach them how to give, how to care for the poor and the needy. And now I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, my kids aren't going to lack anything. They're just, they're going to be totally blessed of God. The alternative, of course, is that if you don't care for the poor and needy, you're under a curse. Fran told me she's going to put a little jar together and she's going to start putting in her coins every day for a whole year so that next year when it comes time to buy a ticket, she'll have all the money she needs to come to the banquet. How many, hey, uh, somebody, some uh, mathematician here, do the arithmetic. Uh, how much money is it every day to come up with 70 bucks? How much? 26 cents? 26 cents every day. How many can afford 26 cents a day? Who cannot afford 26 cents a day? If you cannot afford 26 cents a day, you come talk to me, and I'm going to give you 26 cents a day. So you could start putting it in a, in a Coke bottle or something, and you'll have enough to come next year. Hey, you know what? We, we're going to meet the needs of this world together. All of us pooling the little bit that we have can make a massive difference in the world. Hey, you know what? I did a little bit of arithmetic. And if we sponsor all these kids, we start adding it up. The kids from last year, I think it was a 43 kids this last year and 50 kids this year. If you start doing the arithmetic and, and, and considering that we have kids for about 10 years, we come up with a quarter million dollars just in sponsorships. It's absolutely mind-boggling, folks. But it's everybody working together. So if everybody does a little bit, we could do a big, big work for the glory of God. Amen? Would you stand with me, please? Father, thank you for your presence here. Thank you, God, for the privilege of giving and serving. Father, thank you for the promise in your word that says whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing. God... As a pastor who cares about these people so much, I care about the people in my church. I want them all to know your blessing. I want them all to, to have everything that they need. And God, I, I wish I could come to everybody's house and teach them and tell them what to do, but I have to settle for Sunday mornings where I pass on the good news that if, if we all will work together taking care of the needs of others, then God, you're gonna meet all of our needs. And God, we thank you today for that promise. And so we commit ourselves to you and ask God that those kids that are outstanding, those poor kids in the poorest community, in the poorest country of the world, would be sponsored by the people of Cross Church. God, that's our wish, that's our dream, so that you would be glorified and we would fulfill your holy strategy. Preach the gospel and take care of the poor. And everyone said it with me?
Tell the person beside you, go take care of the poor.